Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the LSE on the opening night, a very special night of the LSE's eighth annual Space for Thought Literary Festival. I'm Robin Mansell, and I am deputy director of the school, and I do welcome you all. The allure of happy endings, the theme of tonight's opening event, is especially salient in the troubled times that we face in the world today. The festival is taking place all week, and the theme of the festival itself is utopias, as I'm sure most of you know. This is inspired by the 500th anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia. And this week's event will be exploring the power of dreams and the imagination to bring about change. Speakers will also be considering the importance of idealism, of dissidence, of escapism, and nostalgia. What are the benefits of looking at the world in very different ways? The panels will be discussing art and well-being, and of course happiness, the competing and often contested utopian ideals of key figures in LSE's history. They will range across the imaginings embedded in Star Trek, feminism, and even gardening. And we all hope that you will be able to attend as many events as possible. I'd like to take a moment to remember Professor Morris Fraser, head of the European Institute here at LSE. He died very sadly this month. He was a huge supporter of the Literary Festival. He was a champion of the ideas it embraces, multidisciplinary thinking, the importance of the arts, and the importance of the arts for social science. He is greatly missed. He had an impact far beyond the school and the festival, and we would like to dedicate this year's festival to his memory. I'm going to hand over to Jonathan Gibbs in a minute, who is chairing tonight's discussion. Jonathan is a writer and a journalist and author of the novel Randall or the Painted Grape, which is an award-winning work of short fiction that is very widely published. He studied creative writing at the University of East Anglia, where he was awarded a Malcolm Bradbury Memorial Bursary. And he's reviewed books for The Independent, The Daily Telegraph, and The Times Literary Supplement, and many other outlets. Just before I hand over, let me ask you to join us after tonight's discussion for a drinks reception, which will be held just out there, and to celebrate the festival's opening. So, without more from me, Jonathan, please. Many thanks, Professor Mansell. I'm very pleased to be uh, here this evening to introduce our panel and to lead this discussion on the allure of happy endings. Your panel this evening are, on my right, your left, Molly Crockett, Associate Professor of Experimental Psychology, Fellow of Jesus College, Distinguished Research Professor Fellow at the Oxford Centre for Neuroethics. She holds a PhD in Experimental Psychology from the University of Cambridge and a BSc in Neuroscience from UCLA. Prior to joining Oxford, Molly worked with economists and neuroscientists at the University of Zurich, and University College London, studying 
human decision-making with the support of a Sir Henry Welcome postdoctoral fellowship. On your far right, Paul Dolan is an internationally renowned expert on happiness, behaviour and public policy and has over 100 peer-reviewed publications. He has worked with Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman at Princeton University, written the well-being questions for the Office of National Statistics, was seconded to the UK Cabinet Office, and he regularly advises global corporations on behavioural science. He is currently a professor of behavioural science at the Department of Social Policy at LSE and director of the new executive MSc in behavioural science. Paul's book, Happiness by Design... This isn't the only one. There's many more outside. If you want to make Paul a happy man, you know what to do. was published in August 2014. And next to Paul, Sinead (laughs) Moriarty... You've got to earn your supper first. (laughs) Sinead Moriarty is a best-selling Irish novelist. Her first book, The Baby Trail, a bittersweet story of a couple struggling to have a baby, inspired by her own early difficulties conceiving, was published in 2004 and has been translated into 20 languages. Other books include Me and My Sisters, This Child of Mine, Mad About You, and recently... Well, it's not recently, is it? The Way We Were is not quite out yet. I've read it and you haven't. Um, And there's been a big discussion about, considering the topic is happy endings, quite how far we can uh, spoil a book which isn't even out yet and ruin it for all the fans of Sinead in the room. So we're going to be treading very carefully on that. Sinead's novels have sold over half a million copies in Ireland and the UK. For those Twitter users in the audience and anyone looking at their phones, I'll assume this is what you're doing. The hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSELitFest. I'd ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available, available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. After the discussion, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. And after the event, there will be a book signing taking place with copies of the panel's books available for sale outside the theatre. So, the allure of happy endings. Here's a happy ending. Reader, I married him. One of the most famous happy endings in English literature. Here's another happy ending. They lived happily ever after. (coughs) How about this one? King Lear prevents Cordelia from being hanged, is handed back the crown, Uh, he rescinds the crown, Uh, Cordelia marries Edgar and becomes queen. Well, that is the version of King Lear that you would have seen for about 150 years on the English stage. Not so much now. We don't like that happy ending. If that's commonly seen as a sacrilege, how about the change that Charles Dickens made to Great Expectations, turning it from a downright sad ending to an at least ambiguous one with Pip seeing no shadow of a further parting from Estella. Possibly the best template I can think of for a a happy ending as we see it in literature today is the second-century Greek novel Daphnis and Chloe, about a shepherd and a shepherdess who fall innocently in love, overcome various trials and tribulations, and end up getting married. 
The story ends by telling us that they lived to a good old age in the fields, decorated the grotto, set up statues and erected an altar to shepherd love and built a temple for Pan, who'd saved them from a lot of their problems, to dwell in. The more contemporary writer Margaret Atwood takes this template and puts a very interesting modern spin on it in a short story of sorts called Happy Endings, which, if you don't know it, you can find very easily online. I'm going to read you a little bit of it now. This is the beginning. John and Mary meet. (coughs) What happens next? If you want a happy ending, try A. There are six sections. A to F. A. John and Mary fall in love and get married. They both have worthwhile and remunerative jobs which they find stimulating and challenging. They buy a charming house. Real estate values go up. Eventually, when they can afford live-in help, they have two children to whom they are devoted. The children turn out well. John and Mary have a stimulating and challenging sex life and worthwhile friends. They go on fun vacations together. They retire. They have hobbies which they find, yes, stimulating and challenging. Eventually, they die. This is the end of the story. That's pretty close to Daphnis and Chloe, you know, two millennia ago. Then you go to B. Mary falls in love with John, but John doesn't fall in love with Mary. Then goes in slightly more length to the trials and tribulations which before them. Then there is C and D and E and F. There's a tidal wave. There's incurable diseases. All sorts of stuff happen to them. There are other people. Eventually, Atwood loses patience with the whole charade and says, you'll have to face it. The endings are are the same, however you slice it. Don't be deluded by any other endings. They're all fake, all deliberately fake, with malicious intent to deceive, (coughs) novelists among us, or just motivated by excessive optimism, if not by downright sentimentality, sentimentality. The only authentic ending is the one provided here. John and Mary die. John and Mary die... John and Mary die. You're all feeling happy now? (laughs) So, panel, happy endings. What is a happy ending? Does it mean a happy ending for the characters or a happy ending for the reader? Can you have one without the other? Can the wrong ending spoil a book? If we take the idea that reading books is in itself pleasurable then can the last five pages of a 500-page book spoil the rest of it? This question of happiness that we get from reading and how the happiness in the book transfers to the happiness in our life is something that I hope Paul can help us with. In your book, I'm just going to feed you one more thing. In your book, you talk, it's good, the subtitle is Pleasure and Purpose. So happiness by design, finding pleasure and purpose in, ed- in everyday life. And reading books, I think, does both of those things and does it in a very interesting way because books, as opposed to playing Nintendo or films, has a sort of reputation for you know, having a bit of purpose as well as the fun parts as well. So how do you think those two drivers of human happiness, pleasure and purpose, apply to reading Hello, everybody. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me, so why don't I read novels? Well, that's coming up. I thought that was going to be the first question. (laughs) Um, So maybe I should have asked you to tell me what you were going to ask me before we started. That wasn't such a a good idea. No, no, no. no. So um, should we deal with the ending? Mm -hmm. Because the ending 
is clearly part of the experience of why you read the whole 500 pages to those final five, right? Yeah. Because you could just kind of skip to the final five. You could get someone to tell you about what the first 500 were about <laughs> and, and actually save yourself quite a bit of time. Um, but there's an experience of pleasure and purpose in the experience of anticipating the end yeah. as well as in the moment of experiencing the first 500 pages that you read. So... Since it's finding pleasure and purpose in everyday life, you're finding it in the experience of the 500 pages, also in anticipation of what you're going to read in the final five. Now, here's the interesting thing, I think. I'll say that to prime you to be interested. Um, It's very clever behavioural science. um, It doesn't actually really matter too much how happy the ending is. Mm. Um, There's some really good literature recently. I asked, um, as I was coming on this panel today... um, could I find some new evidence? No, not could I. Could one of my um, teaching fellows um, find um, some new evidence for me? And he did. And um, there's some interesting evidence on showing people film clips that either end in a very happy way or a sad way around birth, around death, around marriage. And there's a very high correlation. Actually, people think the sad endings are sad. It's not surprising. There's a very high correlation, though, also between them finding those uh, endings exciting, being excited and enjoying, and enjoying, enjoying the film. So they actually get pleasure and or purpose from the experience. But here's the really important bit. That association between feeling sad and enjoying the film is explained by whether the person feels moved or not. Mm. So there is a sense in which feeling moved, being moved by something... um, helps explain, actually makes, doesn't actually matter whether the ending is happy or otherwise, as long as you feel engaged and moved, literally moved, by that process. That idea of the ending comes up in your book as well. I'm going to ask you about not reading book novels in a minute. Yeah. I was saving that up for my sort of... Uh... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm just so used to being vilified um, for, for not reading made-up stories. <laughs> um... The idea of the ending, you've talked about anticipation. So when you're reading a book, part of the pleasure comes from your anticipating what's going to happen. Um, But the experience of reading and the happiness of reading can also go beyond the actual, after you've closed the book. Correct. It can live on with you as well. Correct. What what do we as as authors need to do to make sure that our books are going to live on in uh, future happiness for the readers? You talk about the peak end effect. Yes. Does that apply to that? Well, so this is something, of course, that Kahneman and Tversky came up with, and, and others, that essentially your memories encode two things of an, of an experience. They encode the peak moment, which is the most pleasurable or indeed painful moment of the experience, and they encode the last thing that you experience, the end. Interestingly, what they don't encode is how long the activity or the experience lasted. Some quite important insights for you there, by the way, about how you might live your personal lives. You won't remember how long it lasted um, if you needed that spelling out for you. Um, but, but, what you but, but what you will remember um, is the peak moment and, and the last thing. So um, it's in Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman talks about listening to a piece of music where you have 19 minutes of pleasure and the symphony at the end, there's a scratch. And you say, that ruined the whole experience. And he says, you're wrong. Because actually, you've had 19 minutes of enjoyment. All you've had is a few moments of pain at the end. 
But he might be wrong. And I telling a Nobel laureate they're wrong is kind of a little challenging. But what substantively matters is the memory that you encode of the experience, right? Yeah. So actually, you're right to say, in one substantive sense, that ruined the experience for me. Because your memory, every time you remember that experience, will be of the ending. Yeah. And it will be of that it ended badly. So the substantive question from a happiness perspective, of course, we're never going to know the answer to this unless we gather data of everyone's happiness at every moment of time from the moment they're born to the moment they die, is do you remember that experience as bad in the rest of your life to compensate for the fact that you, rem- that you had the first 19 minutes of fun? That's the substantive question for which it's very difficult to answer, but it's not obvious which way that goes. But would some people, is that down to personality types? One person would remember the, it one way and another person correct, would remember it Correct, correct. And, I mean, what the human condition is very good at doing is remembering the nights out and not the hangovers. <laughs> uh, right? Right? I mean, if I asked you, you know, tell me in graphic detail about a fantastic hangover or a terrible hangover you had, you probably could draw a few down. But what you'd, by and large, draw down is the experience of the night out. And so the human, so, so we're wired to some large degree, and I think it's probably wired and also socialised, um, into remembering the good bits by and large um, and not accounting for, to too much extent, the things that are bad. Now, of course, that's not true of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different personality types. There are people that ruminate on the past. We know from the medical literature that people that tend to think of the past tend to be less happy, um, tend to have clinical diagnoses often if they ruminate. Um, you know, for most people, um, we're generally better off living in the moment um, than we are in the past or indeed the future. So if you, if you are, can your book help, if there's anyone out there who is the scratch, spoiled, the symphony type, yeah. Yeah. as it's no doubt going to be called in the literature, um, <laughs> is there anything that they can do in order to change that problem in their, in their designed happiness? So um, the... Just as we were about to go to press with the same subtitle in the US as in the UK, uh, my US editor said, you know, you this, this finding pleasure and purpose in everyday life, I just won't get that, these Americans. It needs to be more directive. <laughs> so the US subtitle is Change What You Do, Not How You Think. Okay. So, 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 it's an, so it's an action-oriented approach. And it is because if you read any of the self-help genre, of which there are a lot of books... Um, they tell you to think differently. Be positive. Yeah, no shit, I kind of worked that out. Um, how do I actually do that? And, of course, you get no guidance on how to do that. It's really hard to change minds. It's really hard to change the way that you think about stuff. But what's much easier, I think the evidence tells us, is, that, is to think about, insofar as you do think, about designing your environment, organising your life and your day in ways that draw your attention to things that feel pleasurable and or purposeful. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's mistaken of us, by and large, to think that we can think ourselves differently. Um, It's much easier for us, I think, to design environments and situations in ways that make it easier for us to pay attention to things that make us feel good and away from things that make us feel bad. Yeah. Um, In your book, you do say you've uh, never read a novel in your life (coughs) apart from uh, Of Mice and Men. That's quite short, isn't it? I, yeah. re- I read that at school. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, from the stuff that you talk about here, your life is clearly full of 
you know, complimentary <laughs> <Be careful>. stuff. <laughs> I, wonder what, I wonder what you were going to say then. <laughs> but, so I want to go back to my original question, which is that there are probably people in this room who think that reading novels mm. is good for the reason that it does give pleasure, but also mm. gives you a sense of that you are somehow being a good person by reading a novel. So looking at it from someone who doesn't do that, yeah. how would you, what would you say to those people? See, that's a, that's, that's a brilliant question. So <laughs> the first thing to say is that, like, whatever. I mean, like, I don't... What, what floats your boat isn't going to keep mine bobbing along. It's, it's you know, I, I can completely appreciate... I can completely appreciate why many people would get pleasure and or purpose from the experience of reading made-up stories. Um, I, I don't. And I think part of it... I mean, there is a personality effect here as well, too, I think. I mean, if you're an extreme extrovert, for example, probably sitting alone with a book is not, not an ideal thing to, be, to spend doing with your time. Um, but... I actually really genuinely don't care. As long as you are bringing pleasure and purpose to yourself and ideally not harming Mm. and bringing pain and pointlessness to other people, um, to go back to Mill, then um, I think it's absolutely fine. Knock yourself out. Read as many novels as you like. Um, But what's really interesting about your question, I think, is that that was almost in your question that I'm going to make your question, um, (laughs) which is the degree to which people tell themselves the story yeah. that they should read a story yeah. Yeah. or the degree to which people tell themselves a story that they ought to be a particular kind of person yeah. and that, that is a mistake and that's what the book tries to in part do mm. is to smash the narrative yeah. the narrative of the, that we tell ourselves about the things that we think we ought to do because of social construction because of evolutionary advantage because our mum told us to because our friends expect it of us these are the things that actually make us less happy. Mm. So if you're reading that novel thinking, you know, I'm the kind of person that really should read novels, <laughs> I really should, it's going to make me happy, and you're not enjoying any moment, you're not getting any pleasure or purpose from that experience, then put it down. Put it down. Yep. Pick up Sinead. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this. I'm going yeah, to turn to Sinead and ask her something, but I was just thinking about how that idea of, of purpose and, you know, be prepared for, with your questions. We'll be coming to you guys in a, in a little while. Mm. That idea that, that a novelist has got to produce this narrative that ends in a particular way that's got to feel like the purpose has been fulfilled. Everything that's been anticipated has been fulfilled. A non-fiction book writer doesn't have to do that because the, the happy ending is implicit in a non-fiction book because you basically said at the end of it, I've now t- you've now got all this knowledge that you didn't have before. And a, a novelist isn't imparting knowledge, but they somehow like to give the sense that there's purpose being given as well, whereas every non-fiction book has a happy ending, because the happy ending is, that at the end of it, you, the reader, are more knowledgeable about the world than you were before. Was that for me? Mm. Well, and I'm going to yeah, move it on to Shane I wouldn't... And set. I wouldn't. I, th- I think there's some Amazon reviewers that wouldn't agree um, uh, with your uh, statement. <laughs> and come and watch me on my stand-up comedy nights for, that, for some of that. Um, but I think it's... I think it's, it's, it's hard... It's, it's e- OK, so it's easier in one sense, because, of course, the ending is there and you've imparted knowledge. Um, 
but you're consciously, at least I was when I was writing my book, constantly aware of how much I could make up mm -hmm. and how much had to be yeah. evidenced in good science. Yeah. And, of course, as an academic, you're, it's, it's instilled in you, of course, it all has to be good science. But writing a popular book gives you licence to go from the science into speculation. Um, and, and the challenge was trying to get that balance right, to kind of say stuff because I had the liberty and licence to be freer, in both in how I express myself and but in also in what I said about fact. Yeah. Um, but the criticisms, insofar as there, there have been them, have tended to be that the book is, has too many references in it. Um, too many academic references. Okay. Um, so, so in that sense, um, I, I probably failed in my task of speculating a bit yeah. too much. Yeah. Well, academic reference is not something that, Sinead, you have had to struggle with so much. No. no. Um, but your job is to keep a reader's interest throughout the novel such that they such that they enjoy the reading and they enjoy the anticipation of the end, as we've heard Paul describe, but also that that anticipation is paid off <coughs> and is fulfilled uh, at the end and they do, the reader doesn't feel that they're let down. Do you feel a big responsibility to, to the readers or do you just ignore them? And <laughs> no, I mean, just to go back to knowledge in fiction, I mean, you know, Good fiction, well-written fiction is well-researched fiction. You yeah. know, um, certainly my books, for example, I always take on an issue, serious issue. You know, cancer, eating disorders, kidnappings, infertility, and I research them very thoroughly. So actually, I do hope that my okay. reader, my reader learns something new in every book because I certainly learn learn a lot. I do, I do yeah. about three months research before I start writing, so I learn a lot and I try and impart that into the book. Um, and yes, I mean, the holy grail for any writer is to engage, to move. And to have, the, to have the reader go, I'll just read one more chapter before they mm. go to bed. Obviously, absolutely, and to get towards the end. Um, a lot of times, I don't know how the book is going to end. Sometimes, halfway through the book, the ending changes because how I feel about the story and the characters change. Changes. <coughs> uh, and sometimes the ending is the same as how I imagined it. So, you know, it's, it's a fluid thing. You have to kind of go with it. Um, so it's not necessarily set in stone. And that, I, that is, I guess, the beauty of creative writing, you mm. know, as opposed to uh, non-fiction is that you have, you have that kind of, you know, liberty of movement. Um, and, you know, your, your characters, characters, when you're certainly in a, very, in a very kind of creative space, can almost dictate the end to you. And mm. then you kind of know it's right. But um, I certainly... Most of the books that I've read, I've learned something from. Yeah. So, I mean, I certainly think fiction can do that as well. Just to, to take that idea of changing a book as you go along, so the speculative aspect of it being dominant... Have you ever changed what might have been a happy ending into a sad ending or a, an ambiguous ending or vice versa, yeah. a, a sad or ambiguous ending into a happy one during the writing? Um, most, a, lot, a lot of my books tend to have more kind of ambiguous ends, um, endings. Oh. Sorry, um, I've never changed an ambiguous end to a happy end because I think mm. that's kind of a sellout. Mm -hmm. It just felt right. And by the yeah. time I got to the end of the book, that was the ending. That was the ending that had to be. You know, in a way, you don't choose the ending. The mm -hmm. ending chooses you. I don't want to sound hippy-dippy now, but that, that is true. That is how it goes. You know, and when, when you're really engaged and invested in your characters, that's, the story will kind of tell you how it wants to end. So really, no, I haven't, I don't think. Well, I mean, if, there was a scale, if there's a scale of 0 to 10 in happiness, how far along that scale do you think your books have gone in terms of the ending? Because it's called the allure of happy ending, and we were talking yeah. about this beforehand, and... Not quite, we're not quite sure how many happy endings there are out there. 
No, we see. I think I think what's really interesting, and I, you know, I mean, the points we made that you know a book really should move and engage you, and you know, it doesn't have to be happily ever after ending. Some of the most some of the most amazing books, you know, ever written that were under the sort of guise of romantic fiction didn't have a particularly happy ending. If you look at Jane Eyre, if you look at Gone with the Wind, if you look at Little Women, I mean, there's some very sad moments in those books, um, but they would be considered classic kind of mm-hmm. romantic fiction. So I don't think the ending has to be happy, but I think it has to be the right ending for the book. You know, I think, and I think you have to be invested and engaged in the characters. You have to be moved by their story. Um, and I think really, you know, it, I, I feel very strongly that, you know, light comes from the very darkest places, you know, and I think that, that that's the same with comedy as with, as with kind of moving people. You know, if you can find light in the darkest places, people will react to that because that's life, you know, yeah. and life isn't happily ever after. You know, yeah. life is complicated and it's grey and I think that's very important to, to sort of, certainly when I'm writing my books, they're very, they're, they're kind of modern issues that people are dealing with and, you know, there is a lot of sadness and there's comedy and, you know, there is obviously happiness as well, but, you know, life isn't, you know, happily ever after. It's complicated, have you had responses from readers to your endings that made you think again about any of them? I have, you know. Um, so in this book, the way we were, I didn't know until the end. I kept switching at what was going to happen at the end. You only know in the last chapter who she ends up with. But, um, yeah, some people were, didn't, weren't happy with who she ended up with. Um, they <laughs> felt it wasn't the right ending, but it was the right ending for me, you know. So this is, a, to give a brief introduction to the, to, um, the way we were, it's uh, it has absolutely got that sense of anticipation burning through it because uh, the main character Alice has a, a perfectly normal, frustrated, awful, lovely um, marriage with her uh, with her husband Ben, um, who then disappears off on a humanitarian mission. To, is it Eritrea? Eritrea. Eritrea, where he gets blown up and dies uh, in a landmine accident. Um, which obviously she finds devastating, especially when he turns up again. Um, because it turns out that he wasn't blown, not through any fault of his own, he, he wasn't blown up, he was kidnapped, and they made the, uh, this um, sort of rebel leader slash warlord made it look like a, um, um, he died so that he could use him as, as his, essentially his private doctor. During the time that he is away dead, she then falls in love with, uh, eventually, in a totally... Um, uh, not in any hurry, but does fall in love with a, <laughs> another man, and then is basically faced with with this dilemma of do you stay with the as it happens, very good looking and rich lover, or the <laughs> perfectly uh, normal. <laughs> and so that sense, so in that 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 sense that when it gets to a certain point in the book, you just know as the reader, that someone is going to be unhappy at the end of this book. And that the happiness, if it's there, is going to be apportioned and parceled out. And the question, which obviously we're not going to spoil, is how that happiness is apportioned out at the end. Is So is that an example of one where you did feel it coming or... Yeah. Try to blink yourself to it. How well, did you approach it? Just to just to give a little history, the way we were was inspired by the actual the real kind of story of uh, you may remember John McCarthy and Brian Keenan mm. were kidnapped back in the late eighties um, in Beirut, and they spent almost five years in captivity. And meanwhile, back in England, John McCarthy had this lovely girlfriend, Jill Morell, very pretty, and she campaigned for his release and you know kept him in the public eye. And when he was released, they walked off into the sunset, and it was this beautiful love story, and everyone thought they'd get married and live happily ever after. 
and they broke up and he married someone else. <laughs> and, you know, it's about... It's, it, I, know, I always be, remember being fascinated by it because you know, they should have ended up together, but they didn't because he was completely changed by his experience and she was a completely different person when he came back as well because she had changed. And so I kind of thought, God, that's really interesting. I wonder what would happen if you know, that happened in your life. So in, in my book, they have a much more solid base. They've been together for 20 years. They have two children and he disappears for two, over two years. But I was, I was really interested in, you know, can you have a happy ending? Can you get back to the way you were when you've been changed, when you're both completely different people? And so that's really what I was exploring in this book. And, um, you know, like when I say I, I kept switching as to who she'd end up with, because actually, as the book went on, I wasn't really sure myself. But I believe she ended up with the right person. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it's not just... Uh, Alice herself that's going to be affected by this but her children too well, which would be um, a good opportunity would you read there's a short yeah. bit that we, we've um, Happy to, spotted yeah. that uh, will introduce the daughter Holly yeah. so um, gonna, who is the younger daughter is that yeah, right? that's yeah. right so this is basically um, they've literally she thought her father was dead for two years and he, she now finds out he's alive so she's trying to get her head around it and this is Holly's voice she is uh, 14 when she's writing this and um, her father has literally she's just, he's just come back he arrived in the airport and she's just met him after two years of not seeing him so this is just a, a brief extract so this is Holly today was the best day ever daddy came home he looks the same but different he's thinner and older but the same really when he walked through the door he stopped like he was in shock or something he just kept staring at Mummy and me and Jules, and we were staring back, and then we all hugged, and it was so amazing. Grandad seemed happy too, except he's not very good at showing it. I think he was a bit awkward because everyone was crying, even Dad and even his friend David. Declan's family were very loud and a bit scary, were all crying too, and shouting and jumping up and down. Mummy always says Grandad isn't very good at showing his emotions. She says he's a cold fish. But I think he probably felt a bit worse today because he hasn't seen Mummy or us since last Christmas when he told Mummy that Daddy was too good for her and he should have married a nice English girl who would have kept him at home and out of danger. It was wrong of him... Sorry, Ben is English and Alice is Irish. I should have said that. It was wrong of him to say that. I was proud of Mummy because she kept her cool. She didn't shout. She just asked him to leave the house. She hadn't spoken to him again until yesterday when she called him to tell him about Daddy being alive and all that. I'm sure things will be fine again between them now Daddy's back. Daddy and Declan did their interview at the Savoy Hotel. We had to stay in a big suite with Declan's family and watch it all on the TV. Mummy was on her phone when the interview started. I went out to get her, but she was crying really hard and saying, I love you too, I don't know what to do, I'm sorry. I knew then that she was talking to Dan and I felt sick. I knew she'd have to tell Dan and talk to him, but when she said I love you, it made me scared. She needs to love Daddy now, he's back, he's alive. She looked up and saw me. She jumped and then said she'd follow me in, which she did. And when she did, her eyes were all red and her hands were shaking. I do feel sorry for her. It's all so confusing. I held her hand and she clung on tight. There were so many people waiting to hear Daddy's story. Lots of cameras were flashing the whole time. It was weird to see him sitting at a long table with huge microphones in front of him. But he didn't look scared. He and Declan even made the journalists laugh, even though they were telling how awful it was. Daddy was actually chained up every night. I nearly started crying when he said that. Daddy was just brilliant, and all the journalists laughed when Declan said he wanted to have lots of sex with lots of women now. <laughs> he really is a bit mad, but in a good way. When one journalist asked Daddy what had kept him going through the dark times, Daddy looked straight into the camera and he said, dreaming of being back with my beautiful wife and my two incredible daughters. Declan's family and Pip and David all cheered, and Jules and I cried. Mummy just looked really sad. Declan's dad leant over and said in her ear, he really loves you, you know. It'll all be fine. And Mummy gave him a little smile, but it wasn't a happy one. 
I knew she was thinking about Dan, but I blocked him from my mind. Today is about Daddy and only Daddy. Another journalist asked them if they had been treated badly or tortured. Everything went really quiet in the room then. (coughs) Daddy and Declan looked at each other, and then Daddy said, No, we weren't tortured. We were treated reasonably well. They had to keep us in relatively good health so we could operate. But there were certainly some very dark moments. And then Declan said, Being away from your family and loved ones is a form of torture. And Daddy nodded. He looked like he was going to cry then, but he didn't. And then they were asked if they wanted revenge on their captors. And Daddy said, Revenge would achieve nothing. The leader of the camp was killed in a battle, which is how we managed to escape. There were some good people in that camp, but the best person was this man here. And then Daddy put his arm around Declan. He's a brother I never had. Declan looked down then. He said, Ben saved my life and my sanity almost every day. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have made it through those two years. And that made me cry a bit, because you can see they're so close, like brothers. Declan's dad was crying beside me, and he was holding Jewel's hand, and she was crying too. And when it was over, the journalists all stood up and clapped, and we cheered. Thank you very much. Um, The last question I want to ask you just now, Sinead, um, before we we move on, is about... You you mentioned a little bit earlier on about books that... um, like Gone with the Wind and such like, that do have endings that you would consider just or right but aren't necessarily happy. Are there any particular books that, that impressed you at, at an impressionable, important age that had the right ending or the wrong ending um, that, you, that you feel... That you can look at that and, as a writer, you can think, I know, <coughs> what, I know what was done right or I know what was done wrong. Um, yeah, I actually wrote an article recently about the ending in Little Women. Little Women is probably my favourite book as a child, but I still believe that uh, Jo should have ended up with Laurie, her childhood sweetheart from Over the Fence. He had a bit of cash. She would have had a lovely place to write her novels, but she doesn't. She ends up with Professor Bear, and her selfish sister ends up with Laurie. And it just really bothered me, and it still bothers me, and I wrote an article about it, and I got the most amazing reaction. People feel very strongly, either one way or the other, mostly, I have to say, in my camp. Um, and I know it is, I feel I'm almost embarrassed to be criticising Louisa May Alcott. She's an absolutely magnificent writer, but, yeah, it, it, I mean, I read that for a book I probably when I was 10, um, and I'm a lot older now, and it still bugs me. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, if, when we come to um, pass the mics around the audience, if anyone else does have uh, you know, a response to that or any other <laughs> endings that they particularly would like to throw out as, um, as good or bad examples of the, of the correct or incorrect ending, then you're very welcome to do so. Um, the thing that talk that I was hearing from Sinead there that made me think that would be a good bridge across to uh, Molly Crockett's exp- areas of expertise is when the granddad says, or someone says about the granddad, not good at showing his emotions. Um, and Molly is an experimental psychologist and uh, a neuroscientist. And a lot of her work is to do with how we interact with other people, the judgments that we, we make, how we infer how another person is going to act. And it struck me that that is very much what those of us what read novels tend to think of as it being you know, a really good training ground for that kind of uh, interaction. Um, so can we just give up on the psychology and read novels instead, Molly? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're very complementary. Yeah. And as you say, we're 
very fundamentally social creatures. We spend most of our time thinking about other people and how they relate to us. And one of the most important things that we do as humans is make predictions about what other people are going to do. It's even been argued that the main purpose of the brain is to make predictions about the environment. And so we can think about reading novels as ways to simulate making predictions in a a context that arguably has very little uh, impact on our overall welfare in, in terms of our status socially. Although, as, as we were saying earlier, your sort of overall well-being from, from reading novels aside. So, so fiction and, and stories more generally have, according to historians, for, for a very, very long time been fundamental to human culture. And, and maybe one reason this is is because it provides that training ground um, and, and a, a very rich source of of education and practice for mm-hmm. one of the most important things that we do. Yeah. When you, is there research into novel reading? And a sort of side question, how do you research people's psychological behaviour in your, in your own work? Do they, and is it ever with books? So I've not done any research on, on fiction or literature myself, mm-hmm. although there is a burgeoning literature on uh, a, a, burgeoning, a burgeoning area of research on how reading different types of fiction can affect our ability to read the minds of others and understand their emotions. So there is some work coming out of the New School um, in, in New York uh, a couple of years ago where they randomly assigned people to read either uh, non-fiction or literary fiction authors like like Chekhov um, or uh, more mainstream fiction and then after being assigned to read one of those types of passages they gave these people different tests of their ability to read emotions in others um, their empathy and they found a, a small but mm-hmm. significant effect of reading literary fiction on these various measures of empathy. Yeah. And you know, we, can, we can interpret that in many ways. One, one thing that's been argued is that literary fiction in particular or types of fiction that involve very <laughs> deep psychological explorations of complex characters who may be very different from the reader in several mm-hmm. ways um, can help to expand our ability to model and think about the thoughts and emotions of others. Yeah. Yeah. How do you do your research? Because I'm interested in how that, that parallel is, because we're sort of positing the idea that you can understand the human brain uh, or human interactions through how people read. You're not doing that. What are your parallel ways of, of researching people's behaviour? Sure. So um, my lab has sort of two main areas of interest, um, both relating to how we relate to other people in in the world. We have research on decision-making, and Mm -hmm. we have research on learning and judgment. So in the decision-making research, we study how people make trade-offs between benefits and costs to themselves and benefits and costs to other people. Mm -hmm. And so we can study in the lab things like altruism and morality and how people make decisions that affect not just themselves but also others. On the learning side... We look at how people make inferences about the character of others based on observations of their behavior and their decisions. Um, So 
one thing that occurs to me that's that's quite unique uh, or, or an aspect of reading fiction that we actually don't get in our daily lives is when you're reading about a character, you're not just observing what they do, but oftentimes the author will give you a window into their thoughts and feelings. And maybe yeah. that's actually critical towards being able to form that link between the thoughts and the inner mm-hmm. dialogue of a character and their outer behavior. Because in real life, we don't get to do that. Yeah. We don't have access to those inner thoughts mm-hmm. of others. We have to infer what they're thinking based on observing their behavior. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sinead, does that... I'm, I'm come back. Does that... Yes. Yeah fit with your idea of how you create characters? I think that's really interesting, actually. It's a really good point, yeah, because absolutely, you know, I think if you can see inside somebody's head, you will hopefully be more empathetic towards them. Mm. And also, you know, no, char- no person's all bad, so, it's impo- so even if somebody beha- is behaving badly in the novel, it's, it does help if you can see what, inside their head and why they're behaving <coughs> that way. So there's actually, it's, a, it's an excellent point and so true. Yeah. And that, that ability to to mentalize, to have a theory of mind and understand the motives behind behavior is actually critical in how we make moral judgments of other people. Mm -hmm. So there's work showing that um, when we make a judgment about whether somebody uh, deserves punishment for their action, it depends a lot on our perception of that person's intention. So if that person caused harm, was it an accident Mm -hmm. or was it intentional? And the area of the brain that is involved in representing the thoughts and feelings of others, uh, the temporal parietal junction, if you, uh, if you use a magnetic stimulation and knock out that area, it disrupts people's ability to use that mental state information right. to adjust their, their judgments of blameworthiness accordingly. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a properly functioning TPJ, then you're not able to tune your moral judgments according to whether harms are intentional or not. Good Lord. They need to do some research with that and novel people reading novels, don't they? <laughs> Knock out your, uh, your, your TPJ and then see if you're able to sort of... Um, you know, guess or care what's going to happen to the characters or if, yeah. or if you're well, ability to do well, so. Well, but in, in some ways, the, the author's narrative providing that window into mm-hmm. the thoughts and feelings of, of, of others uh, is maybe like a surrogate TPJ mm-hmm. to the reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you don't need to work as hard to make those inferences because that information's being given to you. Yeah. I also worry that the job of an author or a novelist, is to manipulate the empathy of the reader to their own ends. Oh, that's very cynical. That's <laughs> <laughs> very cynical. No, because you're just creating all well-rounded characters. If we're going to read 400 pages of your book and care about which of the two men Alice ends up with, then your job is to essentially manipulate that empathy that... Because, you know, when you get to page 300 and you're thinking, oh, I really don't know which way she's going to go, I really don't know what's going to happen, then that is because you've manipulated my empathy. Oh, that's because <laughs> Alice <laughs> doesn't know what to do. <laughs> no, you're very cynical. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we can't, you can attack, you can magnetise my TPJ and your TPJ and all of theirs. We unfortunately don't have access to Alice's temporal lobe whatever thing so we, you know <laughs> so if we are gonna if we are gonna test if we're gonna lab uh, test people like rats then you can do it with authors you can do it with readers we're not able to do it yet with characters oh, thank no. god <laughs> long may last um, so molly does happiness factor in your work 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think the, the work we're doing on altruism shows that it's not just what happens to us that affects our happiness. It, mm -hmm. It's what affects to others as well. Even anonymous other people, even yeah. strangers, yeah. Um, can impact on our happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And how does, that, how, does, uh, how does that idea of altruism fit with your happiness as, as it works its way out in your, in your new book? Yeah, well, well, my old book now, um, yes. I yeah. guess. Um, my new book's going to be about stories. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, that's actually true. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the, the way it works its way out, I mean, it's actually half a chapter of, of um, Happiness by Design. It's about helping other people mm. uh, because it's a significant contributor, particularly to purpose, sometimes pleasure. But what's really significant about that, I think there's a couple of things. Is One is that actually it's quite selfish too um, and I think we should be celebrating that much more yeah. particularly for policy interventions okay. because even in the term helping others for a lot of people puts them off the idea of doing something for somebody else but actually when you do do something for somebody else you get significant feedback that you feel good about that act yourself and so part of what we need to do I think is to remind people that there's a considerable degree of selfishness in altruism mm. yeah which, I mean, it, it's a totally off-left-field uh, thought, but that's part of the problem with charities having is that is they are always door-knocking and grabbing you on the street. And so if you're doing, you're doing a good thing by signing up, but it doesn't feel good because you're being chased down the street by a guy in a clipboard. <laughs> with a clipboard. That's not really... Yeah, and, and also, I mean, a lot of, of course, a lot of what charities have tried to do is to give you feedback where their yeah. spending is going yeah. so that yeah. you do yeah. feel like that you're making some contribution that you can feel good about having made. Yeah. Um, but we also know that when you make um, pro-social behaviours transparent and visible to people, people do more of them. Yeah. So there's an issue of transparency as well. I mean, I can observe lots of things about um, people in the audience and in the room. How generous and how pro-social they are is one thing that's very, very hard to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the question, the final question for Molly I was interested in, um, and it... it Paul, it can go to you insofar as you're, you've been talking about stories and we can, we can widen it out from novels to films and, mm. and theatre and stuff like that. Music. Uh, well, I was, it's no. got to be narrative because what I'm going to say is can when there's a... story and music? Sorry? Can we not have a story and music can, as well? listen okay. to the question first. OK, OK. Um, <laughs> which is that when, when we talk about stuff like believability in characters and likability as well, which has been a very hot topic in the last year or so, so Molly... Mm. Uh, and Paul, with your, with your professional hats on, when you're reading a book, do you read the characters as psychologists or do you just take that hat off and read it for, for, uh, as everyone else does with their sort of, or, or watch the film or whatever? Do you, do you judge them according to your professional uh, acumen or do you just leave that behind? Depends on the topic and the subject matter in the book. I think um, if the if the characters are close to something I'm studying, then mm -hmm. I might view them through a lens of psychology. I want one example that comes to mind is a novel called The Bellwether Revivals yep. about um, a quite disturbed and, and narcissistic young man that intersects with a lot of the topics that I study in my mm -hmm. research. So that was a fascinating book to read, um, both sort of from a just purely consumption aspect because mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beautifully written and, and really uh, wonderful novel but also the psychological angle 
mm-hmm. I found to be fascinating as well, and it informed my work as well. So I think that's yeah. that's the best case scenario: yeah. is you have uh, a reading experience that's both personally enjoyable and also professionally yeah. informative. Is that Benjamin Wood, Bellwether Revival? I believe so. Yes. We go another recommendation for you. So, uh, where does the music fit in then? Paul? No, just that it's um, it's uh, pretty good for you. Uh, it's no, it's it's uh, it's the most um, stimulating stimulus yeah. that there is. Yeah. Um, all bits of the brain light up from listening to music. Um, it's been used in a whole range of mental health conditions and elsewhere too. Um, but. You know, stories through film, stories through television. Um, I think I probably look at all f- non-fiction through the lens of an academic and all fiction through the lens of a viewer. Yeah. I yeah. think... Um, I, I don't think I've ever watched a film and thought about it in academic yeah. terms. Fine. I might start now, which yeah. will probably spoil the experience. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that is, so, the, that is the issue, is that... It's, and for, as a writer, you, when you're reading... Um, a book, presumably, you're looking at the mechanics of it. If you're in someone else's book, you well, might be well, seeing the mechanics of it. Well, I think it depends. I think if it's, if it's a really good book, again, and, completely, and the writer engages <coughs> you, then you are. You, you don't. You just read as a reader. But what I always feel when I finish a book is, I wish I had that idea. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> or else, if I didn't like it, I kind of go, well, OK, you know, I'm doing yeah. all right. But yeah, generally... Um, <laughs> um, generally, <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> Try not to read as a reader, as a writer. I try to read as a reader. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in a minute, we're going to be sending microphones up and down the aisles for you guys to ask your questions. So have them primed to spare our embarrassment. Um, but before we get to that, is there anything from you guys that you wanted to pick up on? No, I've just been. I just it just maybe is um, picking up on that point. I was just looking at some stuff on Schadenfreude, mm-hmm. which I think is an under-researched area in happiness research. The pleasure of other people's misery for those that don't know what the English is. It makes me have a lot of respect for Germans that they have a word for that. <laughs> be nice if we had our own. Um, but there's a nice study that asked that got Germans, obviously, to look at video clips of Dutch footballers missing penalties. <laughs> and look at video clips of German footballers uh, scoring penalties. Um, and the facial expressions were coded, and the facial expressions were precisely the same. Joy. (laughs) Joy, unmitigated joy. But here's a really interesting thing, and it's an interesting thing for a happiness researcher who's typically relying on answers to questions that people give us. The facial expressions in the watching the Dutch miss the penalties seem to be much more intense feelings of joy than watching their own players score. Yet the self-reports were in the opposite direction. Mm. Okay, yeah. So um, as, if, as if you're not allowed to show how much you enjoy other people's misery. Or, or it could be because Germans, Germans never miss penalties. So well, the Germans never miss penalties. That's true. <laughs> that's just the expectation is that they're going to score every time. But the, presumably the difficulty for you in your uh, career advising to public policy yes. is that when you're talking about nudge policy where you try and get people to do things by you know shifting their behavior in small ways mm. difficult to do that with schadenfreude and sort of come off as a good politician surely. <laughs> um, <laughs> i don't know i'm going to think some more about that yeah. uh, the <laughs> politics of schadenfreude yeah cool. okay i would love to throw this open <coughs> and have some questions and comments from the floor so put your hands up nice and high so that uh, the people with the microphones can come and find you 
we've got someone up there and someone there. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, my question is, do you think, assuming this is true, that unrealistic happy endings in movies, books, etc., are having a detrimental effect on our expectations of real-life relationships? Okay, is there someone in particular? Was, it, was that someone in particular? No, it's open. Okay. Yeah. I suppose the follow-up is, if you thought that was true, do you think there's a responsibility on people to actually not create too many unrealistic happy endings in a fictional context? Okay. Sinead. Um, I mean, that's a great question. I just take an example. Probably the most successful book last year was Me Before You. And if anybody hasn't uh, heard of it, um, it's a, a very romantic novel, but the, the main character is uh, quadriplegic and ends up ending his own life. So it's, it's not a happy ending at all, but it's one of the most loved and adored books. So I just think that... Um, I think I th- certainly I think the books and the movies that are out at the moment are tend to be a bit harder hitting and aren't kind of sh- aren't necessarily as schmaltzy as they used to be. Maybe um, I think probably a bit more gritty. I also think it's your choice. I mean, if you if you're going to go to a rom com, that's what you're going to get. You know, so I think you kind of have to be maybe a bit more discer- you know if, if you're looking for something a bit more gritty, I think you have to be more discerning about your choices. Do you know what I mean? I think it's up to you to choose what you want. To read, watch, listen to, you know, like pop music or classical. I mean, it's like it's like anything really. I think you have to make the decision yourself because there's always going to be, you know, there's always there's always room for rom coms and happy ending and lovely books, you know, full of joy. But there's also room for lots of other things. Yeah. Molly. Well, I think there is something to be said about the role of expectations in happiness. And in fact, um, some, some research by my colleagues, uh, Rob, Rob Rutledge and Ray Dolan here at, at UCL here in London, um, have shown that momentary experienced happiness is, is very, very much dependent on your expectations. And in fact, what is most correlated with momentary happiness is, is getting an outcome that's better than you expected. So pleasant surprises. <laughs> Are, are, yeah. are crucial in, in understanding how happiness unfolds in the moment. Um, so that being said, having bom- being bombarded with examples in film and literature of people who are a lot better off than you could have an adverse effect. And social mm-hmm. comparison, we know, is one of the, one of the largest sources of, of unhappiness, I yeah. think. Yeah. Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, of course, as you get older, you can start choosing what you watch and read and listen to. As children, you can't, and you do get bombarded with um, crazy notions of romantic love, for example, um, which cause harm. Mm. I mean, they actively damage people. Mm. They actively damage people. Um, but I'll just tell you, I, I, rather uh, uh, self-indulgent, but I'll tell you, tell, you the, tell you the story of our two children watching Bambi. Um, when, our, when our daughter was, I don't know, whatever, five, our son was four. And they watched Bambi, and uh, Bambi's mum dies, and, and our son, like a normally wired human being, cries. And our daughter, who's clearly not a normally wired human being, um, sat there very emotionless and looked at him very scornfully and said, he's still got his dad. <laughs> um, and if ever there were a view of optimism... <laughs> That it's, it's there, and I have no worries for her at all in <laughs> any aspect of her future life. Um, our boy clearly needs to toughen up, but that's... Uh... <laughs> books have always, and, and films have always 
been accused of things, and if people are accusing books and films of being too lackadaisically happy-go-lucky in their happy endings now, it's nothing compared to what would have happened, you know, with Goethe's young Werther, which was accused of causing epidemics of suicide across Europe. Um, and people, and that, you know, that stigma that, that dwelling in miserable books will turn you into a miserable person is something that stuck around literature for a long time. Um, so I'd, I'd say it's just going to come and go, I think, and it's not something to worry about. Can I just quickly yeah. say, though, that there are, two, there are two conflicting, competing forces at play. One is contagion and one is comparison. Yeah. So when you, when you are around misery, yeah. it's contagious. Okay. But you also benefit from the comparison of looking downwards. Yeah. And in some contexts, context matters. And in some contexts, contagion will dominate. And yeah. in some cases, comparison will. So you might so. read the miserable book and think, oh, well, at <coughs> least I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Uh, where was our next question? Somewhere a little bit further down towards the middle. Yes, there's one there. Thank you. Um, actually, I was going to ask Paul how he can write on stories if he doesn't read them. But I'm actually more interested in the thing you said later about romantic, um, reading romance is mm. harmful. Mm. Could you just give a specific example? Um, it relates to expectations. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's setting up children, particularly girls through Disney films. I think there is some sort of Disney ruined my whatever, something like this. <laughs> um, this romantic notion um, of there being the one ever there was a stupid story <laughs> and if you want one of the like you know the top 10 stupid stories it's going to be right in there right the one um and the idea of living happily ever after um the evidence and you know molly will will surely echo this too passion that loves lasts for about 12 to 18 months companion that love can start to dominate and take over beyond that um you're not going to live in a romantic love world for more than 12 to 18 months. Get over yourself. <laughs> or, or, or get over that person. I mean, whichever. Um, but this idea that you're going to live in this lifetime of romance is, is completely harmful. I agree. <laughs> is that something you agree with, questioner? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was when I found that happily ever after quote. I found that again, it's you know a lot of our fairy tales we get from the Germans, and the original formula stock ending was they lived happily ever after until they died, <laughs> which you know takes Margaret Atwood would approve of it, but um, you know. It, it, you could probably take it further. They lived happily ever after for 12 to 18 months and then reasonably happily <laughs> until, until they died. But it occurs to me that... that happy, and then tolerated each other yeah, for the next 30 yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a happy ending is nothing more than a judicious bit of editing. Because if you end your novel with two people getting married, as if that's, you know, their, their happiness is then going to extend un, unalloyed and uninterrupted for the remainder of their time on Earth then you've never been married. Um, and and the, the, to end the book on a happiness is just to... Well, again, the Germans, and again, it's Goethe. He said, you know, you choose the moment and stop moment thou art so fair 
Faust can choose the moment when, when he dies. And if you want to die happy, then, uh, then that, that is that idea of editing, saying, OK, that's going to be my happy ending. But happy endings don't exist like that in life because you, you then have, you carry on being reasonably happy afterwards. But isn't that kind of the point, though? There's a, there's a place for movies and books with happy ending because all you have to do is turn the TV off, go out the door, and <laughs> real yeah. life, your parents yeah. fighting, yeah. Yeah. is right in front of you. So, yeah. I mean, I do think there's a place for, oh, yeah. for kids to immerse themselves in happy endings, especially if their home life isn't particularly yeah. joyful. You know, so yeah. I think there's a place for yeah. it. Yeah. Is there another question? Yes, we got over this side. We got some over this side. Good, because uh, yes, let's go right there, and then we'll come over here. Thank you. Um, this is a question for Molly, and I think it's more in a sort of wider societal context, if that's all right. Um, but you know, we sort of live in a time now of sort of comparative peace compared to where we were at, you know, even a hundred years ago, and and I guess. We've got so many things like TED Talks available to us. We have an obsession, I would say, personally, with happiness. And I just wonder, actually, is that obsession itself something that could actually be detrimental to it? That's a good question. I mean, I think... Um, I think one of, the, one of the most encouraging aspects of this widespread attention to happiness and what it is that makes us happy is that in many cases, this is couched in terms that, that are at least somewhat universal in terms of being applied, not just to people who are like us, but broadening that circle of empathy toward all humans. And I think the more we come to conceptualize happiness and well-being as something that is a, a right of, of all people, then we will move more towards, as, as a society, we'll move more towards this decline of, of violence and, and, and aggression. Can I, say, can I say two quick things? Um, it's, it's all about what you pay attention to. I mean, if you are paying attention to being happy, chances are you're not. So in one experiment where students would listen to music and they were asked to be happy whilst doing it, <laughs> they were less happy than those that just listened to the music and then said how happy they were. So you need, need to find the things that make you happy and then stop paying attention to how happy they make you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting social dimension is a recognition of the brains and the behavioural sciences that are showing that we're just a little bit prejudiced. Um, overwhelmingly, the evidence is very clear. Our old reptilian system one, as Kahneman calls it in Thinking Fast and Slow, has a bias for people like us. And, again, it's a question of getting over ourselves. I think a lot of what we need to do is to get over ourselves. I think a lot of science will be better if we did, a lot of public policy, certainly. Um, And you have to recognise that you just have prejudice in you. Um, It serves good evolutionary advantage. And so diversity training, for example, is not a good way, the evidence suggests, to de-bias that. There are de-biasing techniques for system one, your old reptilian brain, but not those that just work on changing your conscious mind or the way that you think and largely talk about things. Um, It requires a much deeper understanding of where our biases lie. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're going to be more tolerant and more humanitarian and more open and understanding to other people's happiness, if Mm -hmm. we're going to have more more empathy. Yeah. Because book, your book is very much a sort of personal... You're speaking to individuals in your book, but a lot of your other work, you are dealing with public policy. Do, do yeah, you find, do you, I get, does that all integrate as uh, far as you're it's, concerned? It's a super it, question, because I wasn't convinced that that was a problem. Hmm. 
until you said it. <laughs> because a lot of people have said it in passing. And, of course, the reason for writing the book um, about individuals is that it's going to sell more copies um, than if it's a public policy treatise. Um, so it was cleansed of a lot of policy discussions. But you're absolutely right. My, my academic life has been largely around policymaking around structure and not around agency, whereas the book is all about what you can do for yourself. And, of course, you know, as in any boring answer, it's going to be some balance of the two. Yeah. Great, thank you. Uh, right, over here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I'm just stepping back a little bit to the idea of why you... There is a question about the ha having a happy ending in fiction... And it seems to me you can't really have a narrative arc without some sort of conflict in the middle, mm -hmm. which then either resolves or doesn't resolve. But in some ways, uh, fiction is kind of software. You run through your brain. You double-check against uh, your own experiences of reality. You're learning other things in the world which you haven't experienced, you may not experience, but it helps build, build that model. When you were saying about Little Women, that it didn't tally with your model of the world in a way, so you needed a different ending for it really to feel complete. I, I notice in, in different places, different cultures, and different times, <coughs> um, <coughs> the prevalence of unhappy endings tends to reflect the culture or the realities of life to some extent. But I do think it does matter about whether you go... Uh, I, I think it is much more embedded in the reality people are living in. Um, and I'm, I'm puzzled about going to utopias, we, we have lots of ways of doing dystopia, mm. and very much in popular culture or gaming or whatever, it's a lot of CGI, obviously. It's easy to blow things up rather than to create a new, and, and a utopia by definition has no conflict in it, or the conflict is beyond something we can imagine now. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Is there anything around not being able to pad out what a happy ending looks like Mm -hmm. You know, what is the happy ever after look like after the end of the book? There's, there's very few things in literature. Sondheim does it with, uh, with plays and other things do, but we, we're not very good at picturing what that is. I think because our modelling system is to m monitor for threats. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the amygdala thing. But I'm just curious if there's other insights into that. Sinead, how long can a happy ending last in terms gonna, of pages? I was going to say, there's always, it's always a sequel or a trilogy. No, 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 no. Um, how long does that how, how long, in terms of pages, can a happy ending last? Well, I think it would be pretty boring if it went on too long. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the kind of the ending of every book, you're handing, you're handing it over to the reader to... Imagine whatever they want to imagine in the future. I think you know, the, you, you're on, you're, you've written your story, and it's for the reader to imagine whatever he wants to imagine the rest of the characters' lives are like. And that's why I think a lot of sequels don't work, because it's not how you imagined it was going to be. Um, same, same, with, same with movies. You know, I think um, sometimes it's better just to leave it. I mean, I think that's why you know, Harper Lee just left To Kill a Mockingbird because it was yeah. the perfect book. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it shouldn't have been revisited, I don't think, and it wasn't, so... Is, is there any, Molly, before Paul, is there anything about the, you've talked about momentary happiness a while ago. Can you try and apply that to the, to the, the act of reading? Is there something intrinsic about a happy ending that it can't be sustained like a chord at the end of a symphony? Well, I had the thought when you were reading about John and Mary at the beginning about just how, um, how static the happy mm. ending was. There's sort of 
there was there were no ups and downs and I, I, I think it can you can link the this idea of there being ups and downs in a story to uh, pushing around expectations and generating those prediction errors that we know to be really important for happiness. Mm -hmm. So you'll get more pleasure out of a momentary positive turn of events if that's in the context of really bad things happening mm -hmm. in, a, in a story than if it's just <coughs> all hunky-dory the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we're happy. We we we're, we're happier on sunny days in winter, and we're miserable on bad days in winter. But other than that, the weather doesn't affect our happiness. Yeah. Um, but I was going to make a different point about the coherence of the narrative. It's important for the human condition to construct a coherent story. We want a world that coheres, that makes sense, that has structure, that has agency. Um, that has control and narrative. It's why we love stories, where, whatever medium they come in. We love a story, and it has a beginning, a middle, and the end. And the middle might be a bit confusing and conflictory, um, but the ending's clear in, in some sense, um, because we don't want the uncertainty to play out beyond then. Uncertainty is very attention-seeking. Generally, uncertainty makes us feel miserable, and we like it resolved. Um, so we will play out in our brains, even if the story doesn't do it for us, we will play out in our brains a conclusion. Yeah. I always think about J.K. Rowling um, saying, long after her books, her Harry Potter books were finished, that she felt it was a mistake that Hermione ended up with Ron <coughs> Weasley rather than with Harry <coughs> Potter. Um, and I often think about that, because if Harry Potter and Hermione ended up together as a couple at the end of the books... I think a lot of readers would have been very happy, but the fact that they didn't means that there's a kind of unfinishedness about it that makes them worry at the book. So I think that sometimes mm. a, lack of, a lack of a happy ending can keep you as a reader more engaged with it um, the further you go. Yeah. My book ends with a riddle, which means that you're supposed to then read the book again. <laughs> but that's another way. That's another way of, uh, of dealing with the issue. Um, can we have another question, please? Uh, yes, I'll just up there. Oh, sorry, and then we'll come to you. Sorry. Hi. Um, just following on from um, what Paul was just saying, um, I'd really like to hear thoughts about um, the relationship between religion and just um, any kind of belief system and happiness? Um, I, I can deal very quickly with that point. Um, people of faith report being happier. Mm -hmm. In self-report data, remember, we don't know from conversational analysis or from facial expressions whether they do. There haven't been any studies, I don't think, that have looked at that. Um, and any faith. So if you want to be happy, find God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's partly explained in what people do, the social connectedness, the sense of identity, the participation. But there does seem to be something residual. Um, and, and I think as we get more experiential data, happiness is the flow of experiences over time, I think what we're going to find, and here's a speculation that goes beyond science, uh, just flag that one up for you, but it's going to be pretty obviously true, um, that what religion does is it's a bit like income. It acts as a buffer against the crap. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sex more pleasurable, but it makes the commute less miserable. You have to commute to have sex. 
Uh, <laughs> now, of course, some of those activities can be combined <laughs> with one another. But, um, and, and, but also, but it's really important. It's a really important narrative and story in adversity. Um, often when bad things happen, adverse events happen, traumas in families and experiences, people will look to God as, a, as an explanation and reason. And it goes to the coherence, it goes to the agency. We can't, it's, the human condition doesn't like randomness and bad luck as an explanation. Mm. It yeah. can't just be shit happens. That's not good enough. There needs to be an explanation and a reason. And I think faith gives people that explanation. Sinead, any of your, have any of your books tackled religion as a major theme? How did that... No, they haven't, actually. No. I mean, as somebody who grew up and went to a, you know, a convent school and grew up in you know, very, very religious Ireland, uh, certainly when I was growing up, it's just it changed a lot now. But um, <clears throat> you know, it was a huge part of my life. And um, I do think that... I mean, I, I would could probably describe myself as a lapsed Catholic, but I mean, I certainly do... When things go wrong, I do find myself lighting candles in churches and, you know, praying to whomever. So I do, I mean, I start, it's something that I come back to. I don't know if that's because I grew up with it, mm. but it is, it, I do still find it a comfort in times of trouble. Is there a reason that, that you haven't given those traits to any of your characters in your books particularly? Um, well, so, so there, is, there is a character in one of my pre- earlier books who, who, is, who is in a, you know... A, <coughs> in a convent school and is, gets into trouble because she keeps questioning everything. Um, and I think that's too very healthy. Yeah. Uh, I see it with my own children now, they question everything. But, um, yeah, I mean, no, I haven't tackled it, actually. That's, it might be a very good idea for the next one. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Molly, do you, do you, um, does your research cover religion? Um, not, not directly, no. no. Although I think, I think there's some very interesting work recently on, on the evolutionary function of, of religion, and, and there's a paper that I read um, th- that I saw come out recently that, that linked sort of um, the development of, of cooperation in societies mm-hmm. to uh, religions that have moralistic and, and sort of all-seeing, all-knowing, punishing gods. And the, the, the question, of course, is, is how do we develop a society like we have today where we cooperate with strangers, we follow the law, and there's no one directly keeping us in check to behave morally a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's been argued that one function of religions that have these um, sort of over overarching om- omniscient om- omnipotent punish punitive mm-hmm. gods um, could could serve that role as a right. sort of uh, moral enforcer yeah okay thank you um, we'll come to the front here for what is probably going to be our last question hi um, I was wondering you've talked about non-fiction and you've talked about fiction but where in the midst of that do autobiographies lie mm-hmm. and because I think sometimes when people tell their own story, there's kind of a line of contentment, and I think contentment's different to happiness. So where, in the mix of everything you've said, where do biographies lie? Uh, do you, I mean, does it, um, do, you read, do you read autobiographies, um, Molly? Yeah, actually, I just finished Gloria Steinem's autobiography. Mm-hmm. That was amazing. I highly recommend it. Um, and... I think going back to what we were saying before about about reading giving us access into the inner thoughts and emotions of, of others and, and linking that to why they do the things they do is present in autobiography as mm. well as in as in fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Paul? What's the what's the what's, what's the, the question? F- about autobiographies and um, how how they I mean what I find interesting about autobiographies is that however 
tough the life is that you are narrating, the fact that you've, you, not the fact that you've written a book, but the fact that you are narrating it mm. is in itself a sign of strength and power and, and the, your story is coming from somewhere that is a, not necessarily a happy place, but a solid place. Um, the, the, it's the autobiographies that don't get written that are the unhappy ones, the really unhappy ones, because you can't even bring yourself to tell the story. Yeah, there, well, there's a considerable degree of purpose, I'm sure, and yeah. narcissism, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I would imagine, too, in autobiographical accounts. But there's something about just it, getting it expressed, which is going to, which is going well, there to be is something. There is something positive about expression. Mm. Um, there is something generally good... Well, uh, that's, a, that's an overstatement. Um, timing the expression in a, in a way that's volitional, not being forced to express yourself in ways... Um, so, for example, if we take uh, trauma counselling, for example, worst possible thing you can do is go in boots heavy with therapy mm-hmm. immediately after the event because it locks in emotions that people are experiencing at the time of the event. So, so what you want to do is you want to allow people to freely express themselves over the course of time by writing things down about how they feel. So some of the biographical and autobiographical accounts probably do that. They probably cohere and have been brought together over a very long time mm. of people just writing notes um, that then come together in um, that final form. Yeah. Can I ask the question, have you got particular examples in mind that you, were, you, you had in mind when you asked the question? Um, I mean, I'm sort of writing my own sort of biography. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of yeah. yeah. I, I, look, can I just say, the most important thing is to be really honest, because a lot of autobiographies aren't. I, read, I, read a lot, I do read a lot of non-fiction when I'm writing, actually, because there's so much going on, I'd like to read non-fiction. But I think yeah, they can always tell when the person is holding back. I think it's, you, know, you can really tell a really good autobiography when they're giving the real story and really, you know, telling the truth. Just I have a very quick kind of funny story about Ryan Giggs' autobiography, which is ghostwritten, obviously. And um, his ghostwriter went to the launch, and he was standing beside him, and he goes, so, like, are you happy with this? You know, are you, are you pleased with how it went? And he just went, the pictures are brilliant, man. The pictures are brilliant. He hasn't read it. He hasn't even read his own autobiography. So there you go. Brilliant. OK. We're going to end it there. I'm going to say thank you very much to Molly, Sinead and Paul for a fantastic discussion which I hope you've all enjoyed. There are uh, lots thank more Thank you, events. thank you as the chair because yeah. you did a brilliant job. Yeah. 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 Yeah.